are listening to PPEs, Practice, Politics, Education, and Solidarity. This is a podcast series curated by the Critical Filipina Filipino Studies Collective to highlight and uplift action and scholarship that is anti-imperialist, committed to movement building about the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. This podcast is named PPE in honor of all the Filipinos, Filipinas working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all over the world and their continuing fight to work safely and with dignity. On this episode, Dr. Joy Salas, an assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Cal State LA, and Dr. Lorenzo Perillo, an assistant professor of dance at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, is in conversation with Dr. Gina Velasco, an assistant professor in the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program at Gettysburg College. She holds a PhD in History of Consciousness and Feminist Studies from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Dr. Velasco's research and teaching explores how gender and queer sexuality inform notions of nation, diaspora, and transnational belonging in a contemporary context of globalization. She is the author of Queering the Global Filipino Body, Contested Nationalisms in the Filipina Filipino Diaspora, published by University of Illinois Press in 2020. Okay, so hello everyone. Welcome to PPE. It's Joy Salas. Welcome to the seventh episode. Um, I'm here with Dr. Lorenzo Prio and Dr. Gina Velasco, and we're here to talk about Gina's new book and her research journey um, and how she's gone to this point and how her year's been. So let's get started. All right, Gina, welcome, welcome, welcome. And uh, we're so excited to have you here. Um, we have a few questions and um, the first one is really just sort of touching base and checking in during this time, during the pandemic. Um, uh, after more than a year, I'm sure things have changed, but we wanted to know what are you doing to find or retain your joy during um, the Rona? That's a good question. Um, first, I just want to say thank you so much for the invitation to be here today. Um, I'm really happy to chat with you all and I'm so excited to see um, the Critical Filipino Studies Research Cluster sort of reconvene and have new energy. So that's super exciting. Um, it has been a hard year for me, to be very honest, um, for multiple reasons. Um, my book did come out in November, 2020. Um, and I don't know if I've shared this, but I'm pretty open about it. I've also, I was also diagnosed with breast cancer in April, 2020. Um, so I've had like five surgeries since then, but I'm doing well. Um, no evidence of cancer, just, um, you know, dealing with the after effects. Um, and I still have one more surgery. So it's, it's been challenging and I've been teaching this whole time. I have two kids, um, a four-year-old named Zane and a one and a half-year-old named Zara. 
Um, and I live with my partner in Frederick, Maryland, and we have been home most of this year. And so the kids just went back to daycare last month. So I would say they are both the biggest challenge and the biggest joy during the pandemic. Um, they're, they're what make me happy every day. They're also, you know, raising them is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And I thought, finishing my dissertation was the hardest thing I've ever done that I thought writing the book was, but this is definitely the hardest thing. And it, I still have, you know, at least 14 more years. So, um, so that's how I would respond to that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's such a, um, you know, that's such, it's so, uh, it must've been such a challenge and it's, it's still going. And so, you know, it's great that we can um, celebrate some of the joy that you've had with your your children and also the book. Have have you gotten a, to show them the book and <laughs> do a photo uh, shoot? <laughs> mostly they just try to tear apart all of my books because they're so little. But I did, um, I was able to add Zara to the acknowledgements during the copy editing stage because she was born in November um, 2019 and I had just turned in my final manuscript a few weeks before and I didn't want to jinx it just in case. I don't know. I was just like, I don't, I'm going to wait until Zara is born to actually put her in the book. So thankfully the press let me, um, add her name into it after she was born so so yeah they have no idea <laughs> like they just see them as the books they're not allowed to touch <laughs> which is funny because most of my philippinex studies books are right above a shelf of their books in the living room so it's like this um forbidden shelf that they're always trying to get at <laughs> Yeah, one day they'll, they'll read them. <laughs> Maybe. I have a feeling my oldest is probably going to be like a scientist or an engineer. He's super interested in how things are built and, and he's very good at math and he's like four. So, so maybe not the same route that I took. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, same, same with what Lawrence said. Thank you for sharing your journey this past year. Um, and again, for taking the time to talk to us. Sure. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so on like to the second question, um, this question's about, you know, your story um, mm -hmm. and your life experience and how have your life experiences informed the questions you ask in your research and your scholarship and your creative work. And honestly, I remember reading your book and you mentioned um, that, you know, you grew up in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so when you like, um, encountered these kind of more West Coast Filipino cultural formations, they mm -hmm. were just kind of like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I honestly could relate a lot because, um, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Chicago. So for me, I'm just like the PCNs and stuff. I'm familiar, but some of the other kind of, um, I guess, California centric <laughs> yeah. kind of Filipino cultural formations. I'm just like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I don't, you don't necessarily have to talk about that, but that was just something I could personally yeah. do. <laughs> I mean, I think it's definitely part of my story. Um, 
I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I went to the University of Texas at Austin for undergrad. This was in the late 90s. And, um, you know, I had grown up with a small Filipino community in Dallas. And when I got to college, I became part of um, a couple of different student activist movements. Um, this was right around the time that students were, two things were sort of happening at the same time. Students all over the country were rising up in defense of affirmative action because there were a few major lawsuits that had happened to end affirmative action, right? So that was um, a major thing that happened. Um, there were, there was a major um, takeover of the tower, which is one of the main buildings on campus at UT Austin in response to a law professor's racist remarks against um, Black and Latinx folks. At the same time, there was also sort of the culmination of about a decade of student activism to establish Asian American studies at the university. And I think it was through that activism that I realized, um, you know, not only was there no Asian American studies, there's specifically no um, Philippinex American studies. And, and you probably don't know that much about Texas, but um, most people that go to UT are from Dallas or from Houston. And those are major metropolitan areas that have really large immigrant communities, including Filipino communities. There's also large communities in the areas that have major naval bases, right? So Corpus Christi, San Antonio. And so seeing that lack, and, and this was sort of um, something that was happening across the country at different universities, undergraduate students who were um, protesting and organizing for Asian American studies. Um, and so being involved with that and in a bunch of direct action as an undergrad really brought together both um, my realization that what I wanted to study was not accessible to me, um, but also kind of the power of student and youth activism, right? So I spent the year after I graduated um, as the national coordinator of a student activist network based in DC. And while the parent organization, I would say, was not as aligned with my politics as I would like, I had freedom to kind of determine the issues um, that I wanted the student network to focus on. And it was um, a peace and justice organization. So the sorts of things we decided to work on were um, domestic militarization in the context of police brutality and the prison industrial complex, um, thinking through US imperialism more broadly and how it affects um, and the effects of US militarization. So um, at the same time, I realized that a lot of the folks that I was interacting with were really resistant to um, 
what they perceived as like too much theory or too much analysis whenever I would talk about US imperialism. And it made me realize that I actually wanted to go to graduate school and that um, it wasn't actually for me to be a full-time on the ground organizer, um, which was a good realization because I had thought that like that was my path. Um, and I, I remember looking at the history of consciousness. Um, at the time, Nefertiti Tadiar was there. She was the main reason why I applied there. And then when I was visiting, um, I met with Angela Davis and she took the time to meet with me. I remember it was at the critical resistance office in Oakland. And it was, it was a pretty, amazing meeting. She, you know, emphasized the long history of women of color activism, um, both in HisCon and at UC Santa Cruz, and really convinced me that that was where I wanted to be. Um, and I think like you were saying, Joy, all, you know, my exposure to West Coast Philam culture really didn't happen until graduate school. Um, so in many ways, I was kind of an outsider looking in. Um, but I think it was that position that actually led me to ask some of the questions that ended up being the basis of my book. Um, just not having grown up on the West Coast, a lot of things like philam cultural nationalism were not actually um, things that I, I was that familiar with until graduate school. And then sort of being thrown into it because I lived in the Bay Area during grad school in Oakland um, really gave me um, a lot of food for thought. I was both, you know, really invested in, in the kinds of things that were happening around me, but also a little bit, um, definitely felt a little bit like an outsider and like um, I was asking critical questions at the same time, which has probably been, you know, how I am, how I've been as a as an academic and scholar my entire career, both embracing sort of both of those things at once. Great, I think that's a great opportunity now to um, turn more specifically to the book, and maybe you can share with our listeners, <laughs> our audiences. Um, what what your what your book is about um sure, sure. starting from the inspiration to um all the way take us all the way to the process of getting it mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. concrete thing you can keep away from your kids <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know when i moved to the bay and I was pretty young when I started graduate school. So I wasn't that much older than a lot of the undergrads who were involved in PCNs and PCCs. And I actually interviewed a bunch of folks, a bunch of performers, um, both at UC Berkeley and UC Santa Cruz. Um, I also was taking advantage of living in Oakland and you know, going to Bindlestiff and seeing performances there and going to um, the Queer Pinai Conference at Berkeley. Um, at the same time, there is, as you guys probably know, a really, uh, like really amazing queer communities 
in the Bay. And so I was also, you know, going out and um, going to queer women of color parties and going to protests. So I think that I found a few examples of Philam cultural production that really sparked my interest, that intrigued me. Um, starting with um, going to a few PCCs and PCNs, going to some queer um, performances at Bindlestiff, um, doing the uh, heritage language program, not the one that I interviewed, but a different one um, as a graduate student. And it was really interesting to me the ways in which Philams narrated their relationship to the Philippine nation. Um, and the ways in which they um, engaged with their relationship to US empire as Philams. Um, I was specifically interested in this fundamental tension that I saw between what I was learning in terms of feminist and queer critiques of the nation and nationalisms and my own political commitments to nationalist movements in the Philippines and in its diaspora, right? So essentially I realized I wanted to think about these examples of Philam cultural production as a way to think through both the limitations and possibilities of a queer and feminist, um, one idea of diaspora, but two um, of queer and feminist engagement with both Philippine and US nationalisms. And, and that is kind of a very uh, broad field, right? There's multiple there's multiple sites that I'm looking at. I'm looking at both the US nation as well as the Philippine nation, but essentially it's from the from a Philam diasporic perspective. That's great. And so was this something that you were you knew right before going to grad school? This is what you would um, you know, this was the project you would work on or is this part mm -hmm. of um, something that kind of you developed only after getting more exposed mm -hmm. to the community here in the Bay? Well, the roots actually came about in my last year of undergrad. I was a super senior, which I don't think people really do nowadays because it's so expensive, but you know, in-state tuition in Texas back in the day was like $3,000 a year. So I decided to take an extra year and I actually took a bunch of graduate classes in the anthropology department. Um, and I took classes with um, Kamala Vishveshwaran, who is now, where is she at? She was at UCSD, but I don't remember. Um, she has written a lot about Indian feminisms in Asali Anhelajani, another anthropologist who um, has written a lot about Black um, and African diasporic women in prisons, um, particularly in Europe. And I took a few classes on gender, diaspora, nation. And I did an independent study with Dr. Um, Anhelajani that was specifically around 
issues of gender and sexuality in the Filipino diaspora. And it was kind of through developing my own projects and doing a bunch of independent studies and, and graduate seminars that I realized what I wanted to study. Um, and so I only, I actually only applied to ethnic studies and interdisciplinary programs for graduate school. Um, I think it was directly out of the experience of realizing that those, that opportunity um, to study Philam studies was not available to me um, at a major research university like UT Austin. And I still don't think that, I'm trying to think, I don't think there's anyone there. There was Kim Alidio, but um, I don't think anyone there teaches Philam studies. Um, I was also part of the student steering committee to hire the first round of Asian Am studies faculty. So um, I was part of the steering committee that hired Jim Lee back in 2000. Um, and so that really gave me some insight into how like kind of the history and the possibilities for Asian American studies as a field during the last year of graduate school. That's great. Um, one of the, I think probably one of the most compelling parts of your book um, was the chapter on performing the Filipina um, mail order bride. Um, and I just wanted to read a line that really kind of stuck with me and tried to, and really made me think about how, you know, how few um, pieces of, of uh, scholarship actually get at this intersection. Um, it's where you say the, the querying, it's on page 86. The querying of the Filipina mail order bride in um, always a bride. Ab, I've been saying ABNAB. I don't know. If, if a, I don't know if that's how it, the acronym goes. Um, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Uh, links two critiques that are often seen as separate critiques of the queer neo neoliberalism of US homo nationalism and critiques of the heteropatriarchal gendered politics of respectability within Filipino, Filipina, Filipino American cultural nationalism. And I just felt like that was such a, uh, it's such a, a, a gap in a lot of the existing Filipino American cultural studies and existing um, queer studies that your work is so important uh, for, for folks to know about. And so I wanted to thank you for that and maybe invite you to talk a little bit more about how, you know, why, maybe what do you think, I don't wanna say, what do you think are the reasons for that gap, but mm -hmm. um, like talk a little bit about that, that particular intersection Mm -hmm. um, in the truest sense of the word, you know, where particular subjects fall out of both mm -hmm. queer, queer critique and Filipino American critique um, mm -hmm. that make it possible for your book to have such an intervention. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I think part of it has to do with the way that even in anti-imperialist and radical movements, the politics of inclusion of like of the liberal politics of inclusion are kind of the dominant narrative. And there's a part in my book where I recall, and this was probably like 10 years ago, 
giving a presentation um, about the chapter on the heritage language program, which was largely critical of some of the heteronormativity that I saw in that program. And a colleague of mine who's a friend now said, but, but most of like half of the ND members are gay, right? And I thought of that as really um, an example of kind of missing the point, right? That it's not about who are we including, but what visions, what are we, are we foregrounding a queer and feminist critique or a queer and feminist politics and how we think about the nation and how we represent ourselves and how we represent the diaspora. Um, and at the time I was seeing examples of film cultural production that were very much about um, kind of reproducing the respectability politics that I mentioned, right? So the website Bagong Pinay, um, there, I, I think at the time, you know, there, there's a little bit of an element of that in some of the um, traffic and women discourse, depending on who you're talking to, the kind of heteronormative um, anti-sex work discourse. At the same time, obviously we need to do work on labor trafficking, right? Because the current dominant discourse makes it seem like the primary form of labor exploitation is sexual labor when that's actually not the case for most trafficked labor. Um, but so you see, you see even in radical movements, this reproduction of heteronormativity that really goes unquestioned. And the inclusion of a few LGBT folks or even half LGBT folks does not mean that you've somehow um, gone past a heteronormative analysis or that you've really grounded your work in a queer and feminist critique. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think it's those moments when you're sharing your work and you get those responses from um, audience members that they, they really stick with us and kind of um, push us further, I guess, to articulate what what we do see as critical. I, I just wanted to say that, like, I've already, you know, put your book on um, one of my grads. Do, uh, I'm on a committee for a PhD quals exam, so I've already put it on <laughs> their comp exam um, and, and recommended it. So I think I hope that uh, more graduates and undergraduates um, can can, um, can also be introduced to to this. And I really love that opening of the 90 day fiance <laughs> because, you know, I kind of yeah. got into it during, yeah. I don't know, a year or two ago. I don't know. I didn't, I learned about Rose and Big Ed and, and all of those um, memes. And so I thought, wow, what a great opening to, to bring all these ideas together and, and hook everybody in. So, so thank you for that. That was great. <laughs> it's so funny. Cause I actually don't watch that much reality TV, but my partner does. And she was like, you have to watch this because there are a bunch of Filipinas on it. And I also realized that some of the earlier examples I was using have actually changed a lot, right? Because there actually were mail order catalogs in the nineties. And um, I think 
that things like 90 Day Fiance are probably the best current examples of the kind of logic in global popular culture around Filipino bodies as kind of easily accessible um, sources of domestic labor, gendered labor, sexual labor. Or the ones that your average person in the US watching TV would be most familiar with. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that's what's, I think, another great um, trait of your book is that it is as accessible to the popular sort of mass concepts, imaginary, popular imaginary of Filipina, of the global Filipina body, and also to um, the more um, maybe academic concepts of neoliberalism or, um, you know. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about getting it published? Sure. Uh, what was um, it like for you in sure. finally landing with um, the press that you, um, you know, University of Illinois or mm-hmm. How, mm-hmm. how was the proposal or the working with editors and uh, editing? Yeah, so um, it was a long process. Um, because of a few things like moving jobs and a few, I had some health issues even before this year. Um, But basically I had been talking to a few different presses and I started talking to Illinois um, and particularly with um, Martin Manalansan uh, who was one of the co-editors of the Asian American Experience series. Um, and I think it's both his support and the support of Don Durante, who was the acquisitions editor at the time, that really convinced me to go with them. Um, and they, I, I had decided that I wanted to do an advanced contract. It, it's not something that, it's not for everyone, but for my personality, I wanted some sort of commitment from the press, even though I know that technically it's not a commitment. Um, So I asked them, well, are you willing to um, sort of expedite the process of getting an advanced contract if I do not, if I kind of do not submit to any other presses? And they said, yes. I was also about to go on the market. Again, I had realized after a few years at my first tenure track job that it was not a good fit and that I needed to leave. Um, So I wanted to have a a book contract in hand when I was um, on the market again. So it worked out. Um, I had really great reviewers. Dawn was an excellent book doula. She was super supportive. She really was um, a joy to work with. And I feel really lucky that she was my editor for this process. Um, Martin was also really supportive. I really trusted his um, understanding of my work and his vision. So that was a big reason why I decided to go with Illinois. there were a lot of stops and starts in the process. Um, for other unrelated health issues, I had a year medical leave and I switched jobs. So, you know, the press was, oh, and I had a baby. 
Um, the press was very patient. Um, and it was, it was funny. It was, I only had like a probably like less than a month's worth of revisions when I got into a car accident and had a brain injury that took a year to recover from. And basically the whole revision process waited for over a year. Um, I didn't do any work on the book in fall 2018 or spring 2019. And then in the summer and fall 2019, I just finished the revisions and submitted it and it went into production. So it was a long process, um, but I was really thankful for the support and the patience on the part of my editor and the press. Um, so it ended up working out okay and I'm happy that it's out. Great, thank you so much. I think it's really important for folks to hear that it's not necessarily uh, point A to point B type of uh, process. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, I think that- Just to I, interject, as someone who is thinking about revising, you know, my manuscript, it is really helpful to hear about the process <laughs> and to know that it really is like, you know, working with the editor, you know, having that working relationship and, you know, mm -hmm. flexibility is really important. I've heard that like from multiple people. It, it really is because I wanted to make sure that both um, the series editor that I was working with and the press acquisitions editor understood my project because I didn't want to get into the position where I would be asked for revisions that weren't sort of true to what I was trying to do. Um, the other thing is that I probably only kept like 30% of the dissertation and I rewrote most of it. Um, and so I wrote my dissertation very quickly because I had already accepted a postdoc and I got them to kind of um, give me another semester to finish. I'd already started teaching at Bryn Mawr. Um, so my dissertation is not something that I was super proud of. I just got it done. Um, and the process of learning to write a book and the structure of a book was very long. I feel that nowadays graduate students are much more professionalized and they, they, some of them even write their dissertations as books, but that was not the case for me. So it was a very steep learning curve, especially the first few years of, of trying to conceptualize a book project. What do you, let's talk about that first thing because I think this is a really interesting point. Um, I feel, and maybe I, I'd love to hear your observations on this. I feel that like editors really want to see graduate students or applicants proposals where there's a significant amount of revision from the dissertation. And in some ways they hold people back if they see a dissertation, whatever that means, whether it means they often say, oh, the language is very dissertationese, mm -hmm. or there's too much jargon, um, or it only serves four people, which was your committee, and we need to serve mm -hmm. an audience of a, of, you know, a global market. Um, and at the same time, like what you're saying, grad students are writing their dissertations as if it's their book. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Do you feel like there's some kind of mm -hmm. issue in the, 
I mean, the product, yeah. the, the labor of, of, you know, like, like I used to think, oh man, there's only like so many presses, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And there's only mm-hmm. so many editors. So if mm-hmm. you get no from everybody, yeah, what's yeah. like, what's the, what's the recourse? And then that, here's this other yeah. thing where now your dissertation isn't good enough. You have to show distance from your dissertation, mm-hmm. uh, which is great if you didn't write it as a book already. I mean, it was just great if you, mm-hmm. you know, finished fast, but if you spend a lot of time wordsmithing a dissertation and you're told that you have to chuck seven yeah. of it. You know, I think that, I think graduate programs have changed since I was in graduate school and the demands of the market. Um, I was not really professionalized as a graduate student for better or for worse. Like I was actually told not to publish that much, right? And um, the expectations of what you've published and how you write are much higher now. So I will say for myself, it took a long time after doing my PhD to to develop my um, voice as a scholar and to be comfortable with writing for publication. Um, And there was a lot of self-doubt in that process and a lot of feeling that I really didn't have anyone to mentor me um, in terms of how to be a scholar, right? I mean, I had graduate school, but that's, that, that doesn't include all of like the professional development type mentoring. Um, really, Martin Manalansan took me under his wing and taught me a lot and, and pushed me to get the book out because I think I did the opposite. Rather than sending in the dissertation, I waited for years and years and years um, because I, one, felt like my dissertation was not that strong and two, did not have a clear idea of how, of what I wanted the book to be about. Um, and then I got this little push in the butt, which was deciding that I was either going to get a new job or I was going to leave academia because I was not happy at my old job. And I use that as motivation I told myself, I want to get an advanced contract by the fall. This was around February. And that was the deadline. I committed to sending two chapters to Illinois by June, and I forced myself to do it. And then I think by November, I had signed the contract. Maybe it was December. So I just decided I need to stop sort of dilly-dallying and stop letting self-doubt take over. And I had a few talks with mentors, with Martin, um, Deb Vargas, who's at Rutgers, helped me think through it, and, and a bunch of people over the years. But really, it was, it was a lot of it was around getting past my own self-doubt and, and learning to um, be comfortable in putting forth my voice as a scholar, right? Instead of like, writing as a graduate student, where you're kind of always um, emphasizing and citing other folks and not necessarily putting forth your own argument. And that for me happened after graduate school, right? Some people are already 
at that point when they get the degree, but that wasn't the case for me. So if anyone feels like you're slow or late bloomer, I can relate. <laughs> no, I think that's a really important point because I think, I mean, I just think now, like even from when I started graduate school in 2013, 2014, like it has changed a lot. And, you know, the demand to publish early um, and to publish a lot um, has really increased. Um, but I think, you know, your point about finding your own voice and being able to be confident in your voice and what you're doing is really important. Um, and something I can relate to too, because for me, I was like, I don't want to publish something I'm not confident in <laughs> or that I feel like doesn't represent what I really um, am committed to. Um, but yeah. And Oh, yeah, and, and shout out to Martin, who yeah. got promoted. I know, yay! The fall. Everybody, go find a Martin. <laughs> I know, right? He, um, I met him at my very first AAAS when I was an undergrad, and then maybe like seven or eight years later, he came up to me at ASA and said, and actually said to me, "I want to mentor you." And it blew my mind. I was like, you know who I am? Oh my gosh. It no, literally no one had ever done that. And I don't think anyone's ever done that for me since. Um, but I, there, this book wouldn't exist without him. Um, at various steps along the way, he sat me down and explained things to me, which no one, you know, no one tells you these things, especially if you you know, are the first in your family to get a PhD or to be a professor. So I'm, I'm very thankful to him and to all the other folks. Sarita C was also incredibly supportive. Um, of course, you know, Nefertiti shaped all of my early academic training, so. All the shout outs, we love it. <laughs> And it's really important too, because, you know, I mean, um, I think acknowledging and recognizing the genealogy of Filipino and Filipino American studies and how it's changed and grown so much in the past two decades, I think it's so important and it's exciting to see mm -hmm. the work that's being published um, in the past couple of years and, you know, so including your book. And I, and I will say that, you know, you talk about it, it was a long process, but I think it pu was published at the right time because I think there's a lot of scholars and also, um, you know, early career scholars and also graduate students and even undergrads too, who are engaged with, um, you know, diasporic nationalism, mm -hmm. um, whether it is through their own, you know, research or their own um, political commitments or both. Um, mm -hmm. And I just want to point out the example in the conclusion of the, you know, Jennifer Laude protest mm -hmm. in New York City that you talk about with Bayan, Audre Lorde Project, and the New York City Anti-Violence Project, mm -hmm. and how that was a critical moment, <laughs> right? I think for a lot of Filipino Americans and looking at, mm -hmm. you know, anti-imperialists through a, you know, queer diasporic lens. Mm -hmm. And I think it leads into kind of the next question, which is, what does you know critical Filipino Filipino studies mean to you um, as as a scholar doing this mm -hmm. type of work? Yeah. Um, to me, it has been really important to 
be in community with folks who have um, similar political commitments. And this is not to say that, you know, that my political commitments are identical, but to know that there are politically engaged folks who I see myself in community with as um, scholars, right? To know that um, folks see this, the political stakes as similar, right? That, it, that, it's, that it's more than, than just our scholarship or our scholarship has to have, um, has to be engaged with communities and with social movements in multiple ways. And I also see it as an opportunity to kind of um, think about what are some of the critical conversations that we will be having. I'm super excited to see early career folks and junior folks and the kinds of questions they're asking. Um, I recently wrote an encyclopedia essay on queer Filipino Americans for the Philippine X um, encyclopedia. And I used it as a chance to read a bunch of forthcoming um, work in queer Filipino studies that by a bunch of junior folks. And it was really exciting to see that there are all these conversations happening that are different than the few folks who were doing Philippine X queer studies like 20 years ago, right? Um, and that's actually, when we, when we talk about field building, that is where I see my future work is in building conversations around queer Philippine X studies and, and sort of uh, grounding our discussions around our commitments um, to anti-imperialism, to critiques of racial capitalism. Um, so that's what, what I see as the importance. And, and those are the kinds of conversations I'm excited about in the future. And, and I'm actually hoping to co-edit um, a book on Filipinx queer studies in the future. That's kind of my goal. I decided I'm not ready to write another monograph, but I'm kind of more interested in discussion and not you know, spending another like five years on one solo project. And that actually also segues into the last question too, because you're talking about the future and um, what we'd like to see in our field. And so um, what are your sights of hope? And, and it can yeah. be about our field or it could just be about, mm -hmm. you know, the world in general, yeah, because <laughs> um, yeah. a lot of things are changing right now, um, mm -hmm. in terms of, yeah, the pandemic and everything. I, I think I see sites of hope, actually, in folks who are younger than me. I think that I, you know, I'm at, I'm getting to the age where I'm like, whoa, yeah, these folks who are starting you know, to get tenure track jobs are like a decade younger than me. Um, but I think it's exciting. And I think that I want to see more folks having conversations around ideas that are important to me, both within and outside of the academy. Um, it was great, for example, um, I have a recent article 
um, around some of the ideas we've been talking about, what does it mean to have a queer anti-imperialist um, diasporic perspective? And I just happened to like tag um, PJ Raval, who's the director of Color Agenda. And we had a great exchange on Twitter. Um, and it was just really nice to talk to folks, um, cultural producers, folks who aren't necessarily academics about things that are important to us um, and to realize that, um, that these conversations are happening. Um, at the same time, I'm, I don't know, it's, it's hard. I think I'm both, I have a lot of hope in the social movements that I'm seeing um, on the ground, as well as a little ground down by the pandemic. And so I'm hoping that other folks who have more energy um, are feeling inspired despite these times. Well, I think um, if anything, it's a great way to, um, you know, point to your book as a site of hope for others as well and a source of inspiration. Um, thank you so much, Gina, for um, joining us today and for sharing um, all of your, uh, all the many parts of your journey. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been so nice to be here. Yes, thank you, Gina. I learned a lot. <laughs> Thank you. I would love to hear your thoughts, especially since you're writing a review. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone, um, and hope you have a great day. Thank you.